0: We are continuing this morning with our ongoing study of the Book of Acts. We are picking up at verse one of chapter seventeen and working through to verse fifteen of that same chapter. Um, And just, uh, I want to take a minute or two in the front end just to kind of remind us where we've been in this study so far. Uh, I think it's good to do that from time to time. But we get began this series about ten months ago, and uh, we at the time uh, we. Subtitled this book of Acts, we subtitled it The History of the Ongoing Ministry of Jesus. And the reason we did that was because this book is the second part of a two-part work that starts with the Gospel of Luke covering the earthly-based uh, ministry of Jesus, and it finishes with the book of Acts, which is covering Jesus' heavenly-based ministry as carried out through the agency of the Spirit. And how has the Spirit carried out this continuing ministry? He's done it by indwelling and impelling His people into the world for the sake of His kingdom. That's uh, sort of a background perspective that we've taken. And with that perspective in mind, what we have seen and are seeing and will continue to see as we work through this book is a summary of the Spirit's work in that regard. And please note that what we are seeing here is a summary. This is not an exhaustive description of everything that happened in the early days of the church. Nevertheless, while it's not exhaustive, it is certainly sufficient and clearly displays the Spirit's work of expanding the church geographically and numerically, pushing out to Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. Uh, In our early studies, we saw the first stage of the church's foundation, all of which took place in the city of Jerusalem, and we kind of followed that through from the, uh, the, from the beginning of the book all the way up through chapter 6, verse 7. Uh, at that point, as you may recall me um, saying before, the clock slowed down. And in order to draw our attention, it slowed down in a literary fashion to draw our attention to the events surrounding the ministry. Uh, and then the subsequent murder, actually, of the church's first martyr, Stephen, and all the things that happened in the wake of that. And the reason for that extra attention, that slowdown, uh, is because the death of Stephen uh, at the hands of the Jewish authorities marked a real turning point in the early history of the church. From that point forward, we see a a marked increase in the level of persecution that the church endured, which in the providence of God, uh, that increase of persecution became the catalyst that God used to expand the church's mission beyond Jerusalem. Put that another way, God deliberately, God strategically used a bad thing to bring about a good result, which was the extension of the church's mission to the rest of the world. Now, when you kind of take uh, just a step or two back and try to take in a little bit more of the landscape of Acts and this bigger picture of what's going on, you see that these events that are connected with Stephen are really the first of four steps that Luke takes us through that really set up the rest of the story of the book of Acts uh, and the story of the church's mission beyond Jerusalem. Those four steps um, briefly are uh, firstly, as I've just said, uh, Luke shows us kind of the situational catalyst for the church's expansion, which is persecution, the death of Stephen and the persecutions that followed it. That's the first step. Secondly, he gives us, uh, the, talks to us about the selection. And the preparation of the one who would lead this expanded mission to the Gentiles, namely the Apostle Paul. The third step is he shows us the necessary biblical theological development or revelation that would fuel that mission in the accounts about Cornelius and the vision that Peter had. Uh, and what revelation was this? Simply that God, uh, he, God's plans and purposes included the Gentiles, the non-Jews, that the beneficiaries of his promises included the nations. So those three steps, and then the fourth step, Luke gives us two accounts back to back to show us what the flavor or the nature of the church's expansion will be like, as if to say, this is how the expansion of Christ's church is going to take place. This is what it looks like. This is what the work of God looks like when it's moving forward. The first account is Acts 11:19 to 30, which in summary is just this really encouraging account of the preaching of the gospel in Antioch and how many, many people responded and a strong work was established there. The second account is Acts 12, 1-24, and in summary is a sobering account of the murder of one of the apostles, James, by Herod, and the subsequent imprisonment and then release of a second apostle, Peter. And the effect, you see, of these two accounts, one after the other, is to show, again, that this is what The expanding work of God's kingdom will look like. This is how things are going to go. On the one hand, you're going to see God do great things in people's hearts, and there'll be great responses and even movements and sometimes mass responses of faith and repentance. On the other hand, there are going to be times of great difficulty uh, and uh, persecution and even death. God's people, including some very gifted, strategic people, are going to be killed and they're going to suffer. And yet the church will prevail. The gospel will continue to advance even through suffering and tears. So he puts those side by side so we see this is how it works in God's kingdom. This is how it advances. And with all that in place, Luke is finally ready to begin chronicling for us the expansion of the church itself. And so he does. And we read the account of Paul's first missionary journey in Acts 12, 25 to 14, 28. And then at the conclusion of that journey... We saw the events surrounding this thing called the Jerusalem Council, Acts 15. Uh, You may remember that, which was really kind of the the first general assembly of the church. And at that first great meeting, um, it, it really was a monumental event in the church's life because what we saw there, in essence, was the final united theological confirmation that the church's transition out of its Jewish birth clothes was now complete. It was the final stamp of approval on all that. And so with that finally settled, Luke launches into the account of Paul's second missionary journey, which Woody has been taking us through in his most recent round of sermons, leading us up to where we are this morning on the doorstep of Acts 17. And as Woody also pointed out to us, what we are seeing in this second missionary tour are the origins of the gospel mission to the European continent with a toehold in Asia. And, uh, and the significance of this, even the contemporary significance of this, can hardly be overstated. Uh, Stott writes, with the benefit of hindsight, uh, knowing that Europe became the first Christian continent and was until recently the main base for missionary outreach to the rest of the world, we can see what an epic-making development this was, this second missionary journey. Because it's from Europe, you see, that in due course, the gospel fanned out to the great continents of basically the rest of the world, Africa, Asia, North America, Latin America, Oceania, and so it stretched out to the end of the earth. This is where the end of the earth part of the gospel mission gets launched and established on this missionary tour. So that's where we are in the midst of this second missionary journey. That that established all that. With that kind of a summary before us, please pray with me. And then we'll look at these verses before us. Please pray. Father in heaven, please guide us now as we look at this portion of your word. Use these truths to uh, strengthen and equip us. Use them as a mirror in which we see things about ourselves that we need to see. um, Good, bad, or otherwise. Use them as a picture that we might see glimpses of Jesus, the one into whose likeness we are being made, slowly but surely, and use them as a window through which we see you, the God who stands behind all of this. Show us at least these things, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's the passage. It's printed in your bulletin. If you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to follow along there, either actually or electronically. Acts 17, verses 1 and following. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And Jason has received them, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as a security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. And now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. And then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. And those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So, as you think about uh, Paul's continuing ministry on this, uh, his second missionary journey, we see in these verses a record of what happened to him in two different cities, both found in a region known as Macedonia. With one of these cities, Thessalonica, is actually the capital and most significant city of that region. And, and and you know, this is something of a side note, but it may be because of the strategic uh, nature of that city, that may be the reason that Paul is described in the opening verse as simply passing through to other cities, Amphipolis and Apollonia, presumably without stopping, before he came to Thessalonica where he did stop. Because he may well have been targeting Thessalonica. He thought... Uh, Very Quite possibly there was a strategic place to get something going. And if you actually look at Paul's overall track record, it does very much seem to be the case that he deliberately focused on key cities like Thessalonica and Ephesus and Corinth. Tim Keller, a PCA pastor in New York City, in a number of places, has noted this strategy of Paul and, in fact, grounds his church's philosophy of ministry, at least in part, upon it. And it's not because he thinks that ministry to smaller towns or suburban areas does not matter. Clearly it does. But in Keller's view, uh, targeting key cities is helpful to both the city itself, uh, to the nation at large, as well as the lesser populated areas around them. For a lot of other reasons that he develops that we can't go into right now, but maybe at a later point. But it does really seem to be the case that Paul is, do, is uh, very intentionally choosing to establish churches in some leading cities of every region that he goes to. So Paul went to Thessalonica, and it's his custom. He goes straight to the synagogue and began, as the passage says, reasoning with them from the Scriptures. And if that sounds familiar to you, uh, it's probably because it is. As you may or may not recall, the end of Luke's Gospel in chapter 24, there's an account of Jesus doing this very thing. He's walking on the road to Emmaus, taking these two men through the Bible study of a lifetime, and he's showing them how the Scriptures point to him. This, no doubt, is the very thing that Paul is now doing amongst the Thessalonians. So as we think about this passage in an admittedly cursory fashion, there's a number of things I want to highlight. First of all, note that the passage says that on three Sabbath days, that is, three successive Saturdays, Paul reasoned with them from the Scriptures. You could say that Saturday was game day for Paul, and... um, But the reason for pointing this out is is this. In other places in the book of Acts, like Acts 19, for example, you read about Paul teaching or ministering daily. The difference being that sometimes Paul carried on his ministry as a tent maker, working at a regular job during the week, and then on the weekend, as he does here in Thessalonica, makes his way to the synagogue to engage in his evangelistic gospel ministry. And other times, because Paul had received gifts and sufficient financial support from individuals or churches, he was able, for a season, sometimes for a long season, to engage in gospel work full-time. Now, it's not a major point, but I think it is worth noting that at least for a certain portion of his ministry, Paul was a part-time gospel worker. He worked at a regular job during the week, and on the weekend, he went crazy for Jesus Think about that. The single most influential person in establishing the mission to the Gentiles in the early church was sometimes a part-time worker. And yet even though he was part-time, God obviously used him in a deeply significant way. Let that sink in Many of you know Nick and Laura Labasi, who were with, here with us for a long time, now living in Turkey, immersed in a large population, of foreign culture. And while initially they went on the mission field and were serving in a more full-time capacity, they have transitioned in recent years to more of a tent-making kind of situation. Nick's working during the week within his field, Laura's working at home, both of them devoting themselves to supporting the work of the kingdom in a part-time capacity, but being used by God to support an ongoing evangelical work by and among Turkish nationals. And it's a beautiful thing. It is, it's it's a kind of ministry we should value. And maybe, maybe it is something that more of us should consider for the sake of the kingdom. I mean, I, I love you guys. I love this church. But I sincerely hope that the day will come, at least for some of you, that you will leave. And that you will do so for these kinds of reasons. And when you do, we will miss you. We'll write you. I'm sure we'll support you. And of course, not everybody can do it or should do it. But hear me, some of you can. Some of you can You can go and be tent makers in those places where there aren't quite so many Christian workers. Strategic places where the gospel has not penetrated very deeply, if at all. Again, it's a minor observation but God can do amazing things through part-time ministry. Witness the Apostle Paul. Another thing to note in this passage is this word reasoned. Paul's described as going down to the synagogue on Saturday, spending his time reasoning with the people who were there, discussing, debating, asking, answering questions. And here's the key, he's using the scriptures to do so. And as he did, there were three things in particular, in which the passage points to, that he wanted them to understand about the Christ. Just read that small portion again. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer And rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Now that phrase, the Christ, is really important. Because it means that when when Paul was doing this, he was trying to show what the Bible, which at that time was the Old Testament, but he was trying to show them what the Bible said about this figure who was the Christ, This coming one, this promised deliverer, who first appeared in Genesis 3 and who continued to be talked about throughout the rest of the Old Testament. We've seen that a number of times here. And the reason Paul was talking about the Christ, this theological figure, is because over time the Jews had developed some wrong ideas and expectations about this whole thing. One reason for the wrong expectations is that the Jews seemed to have lost track of some of what the scriptures had said about God's Messiah or Christ. And then there was the opposite problem. Not only were they missing or misreading certain things that that were right there in the Bible, they were also adding to what the Bible said on this subject, assuming things about the Christ that actually weren't anywhere to be found in the Bible. And so the problem when Jesus, the true Messiah, the Christ, when he came, the problem was not that Jesus didn't fit the mold. The problem was that the Jewish understandings about the Christ didn't fit the Scriptures. And so Paul, just like Jesus had done, tried to take the Jews back to their own scriptures, in essence teaching them how to read their own Bibles. And so one of the things that Paul was reasoning with his listeners about, one of the things they lost track of was this fact that the Christ, the Messiah of God, had to suffer. And why did he have to suffer? Because contrary to popular expectation, his purpose in coming was not so that he could overthrow the Romans and establish a new Israel and kind of usher back in the good old days. No, his purpose in coming was to actually overthrow a far greater kingdom than the Romans. Satan's. And to defeat a far greater enemy, sin and death. And to do so by being the one final sufficient sacrifice that would forever atone or pay the penalty for the sins of God's people. So we read, it was in the bulletin this morning, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was on him, by his wounds we are healed. Paul was taking him to those kinds of passages and saying, what about this? What is this telling us? You're missing this. Your Messiah picture is missing this. The second thing he wanted them to be clear on was not only that Christ had to suffer, but he had to be raised from the dead. And in talking about that, this is all theological shorthand with Luke, but in talking about that, Paul would have emphasized not only the fact of a resurrected Messiah, but the significance of a resurrected Messiah. And what was it? Well, mainly this. The resurrection is clear proof that the perfectly justifiable wrath of God towards sinners had been completely dealt with by Jesus by his suffering and death. Christ had paid the price for his people and God was satisfied with that. In short, what Christ did was complete. It was sufficient. It was finished. Over and done. And then Paul, you see, after he's taking the time now to realign their thinking about the Messiah with the scriptures, he then moves to his third point. He went from talking about the theological figure of the Christ to talking about the historical figure of Jesus. In short, he's... what he he was doing in that synagogue in Thessalonica was was making a case for how to recognize the Messiah. They'd been scanning the horizon, looking for a guy on a white horse, so to speak, and what Paul was saying to them, in essence, is forget the guy on the white horse. The Scriptures talk about a guy who's coming to suffer and die, and he's going to rise from the dead. Look for that guy. Who do you know who fits those criteria for the Christ? Jesus. Jesus is the Christ. The long promised, much prophesied, finally come Messiah. Why am I laboring this point? Because I think it matters. Because it provides us, for at least two reasons, probably a lot more. But it provides us, first of all, with a great and useful summary of Paul's gospel preaching. As you see right here, at the core of Paul's message are these two ideas. Jesus suffering and death for sinners who have offended a holy God. And that same holy God accepting a death penalty payment on behalf of helpless people. And then raising Jesus from the dead as proof. So seeing what Paul focused on helps us to know what we ought to focus on in our own ministries. In our own, by that I mean in our own conversations with people because ministry flows through relationships. He's showing us what to focus on in our own conversations with those who've not yet embraced the gospel because there's all kinds of gospel implications and benefits that we can talk about and those are great and wonderful, but the bare minimum of what we need to talk about with them is found right here. That's one reason this matters, but also important because it shows us not only what Paul said but how Paul approached these people in this situation. Right? Paul was keenly aware of his audience. And see, we're not going to go into this a great deal because we're going to take longer to look at it next week, but in the very next passage, we're going to see Paul in a different place, Athens, very different context, and he therefore takes a different approach. He doesn't change his fundamental message, but he does come at it from another direction. Because Paul understood, you see, Paul understood that you cannot have a one-size-fits-all approach when it comes to telling people about Jesus. It's, It's not wooden. It's not rote. It's not mechanical. Ministry is about people. It is about relationships. It is contextual. And it is opportunistic. You can't wait for ideal situations. They never show up. You have to minister where you are, and you have to minister to the person in front of you, not the one in your head. Think about that for a week. We're going to pick that up and develop it a little further. So Paul reasoned with the Thessalonians, showing them that Jesus was the true suffering and resurrected Christ of Scripture. How was this all received? The passage says that some of them were persuaded and joined he and Silas. The them that's referred to are probably the God-fearers, which is Luke's shorthand for the Gentiles who had embraced the Hebrew religion and would have been there in the synagogue that day. And along with them, some Greeks and some of the prominent women in the city who also responded. In short, a wide variety of people responded, but at least in Thessalonica, the Jews were not having any of it. They were in fact jealous, most likely because Paul's ministry was taking people away from the synagogue. He was messing up their annual plan And unfortunately, these Jews were not only angry and jealous, they were active. Uh, So much so, they stirred up an unruly mob, probably paying them off. Sent them in search of Paul and Silas. And that search and their intel told them that Paul and Silas had been staying with a man named Jason. Very likely the Jason in Romans 16.21. But they stay there, so they go to his house. And not finding Paul and Silas there, they do the next best thing. They drag Jason before the city authorities. They charge him basically with aiding and abetting Paul and Silas whom they characterize as seditious. He's a threat to uh, Caesar's rule and government. Now as at least one commentator has mentioned, the thing about this charge is this, it is at least half true. It's at least half true. While Paul had never aligned his messianic mission with plots to overthrow Roman rule or incite public disturbances, the fact remains that accepting the lordship of Christ would mean new priorities and loyalties for those who became disciples. It would lead to the transformation of personal relationships, business and personal ethics, social structures and ambitions, new attitudes towards other religions, and changed ways of relating to Caesar and his representatives. All of that's true. Embracing Christ as Lord has a very real, this world set of implications. Now we do have to obey God rather than men when we're forced to make that choice. At the same time, because we understand that God's sovereign, he exercises sovereignty through secondary causes like human government, see Romans 13. But because we understand that there's a very real sense in which Christians ought to be the best citizens in the world right up to the point where obeying government means disobeying government. At that point, we choose differently. Before that, we're the best citizens around. And so there's this real tension you see within us, respecting authority on the one hand, but recognizing on the other that human authority has limits and it's always answerable to a greater authority, whether or not that human authority recognizes that fact. And that means Christians are always going to be open to the charge of having a conflicting allegiance. And as the borrowed capital of Christianity continues to fade and government becomes more and more secularized and more consistently blurs the line between public and private realities, I believe we can expect to be regarded with more and more suspicion as those who are always upsetting the apple cart As those who do not play very well with others in the public square. As Stott puts it, the preaching of the gospel is always disturbing to the social and political status quo. So at any rate, a serious and at least half true charges are leveled against Paul and Silas by this rental mob, and this uh, not surprisingly upsets the city authorities because leaders who ignore these kind of things don't keep their jobs or their heads for very long. And so as a way of putting a stop to Paul and Silas, they extract some insurance money from Jason, and if Paul and Silas ever show up again, then that money will be forever gone, probably financially ruining Jason, that was the idea. And we're not told this explicitly, but apparently in this instance, things worked out for him okay. Paul and Silas have been whisked away, the next thing we know, to a nearby town, Berea, 45 miles away. And once they're there, they continue with their pattern of going back to the synagogue. But here, they find a very different response. As the passage says, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, as a result, believed. There are a number of things going on here, but our time really is gone and, um like, I almost really mean that as a preacher. Like this. <laughs> so the, the main thing I want to comment on here is simply this very different response that the Bereans made to Paul's ministry. He goes to two different synagogues. He takes the exact same approach in both of them. And then Luke records for us a very different response. He commends the Berean Jews. In fact, it's being more noble than the Thessalonians. What made them more noble? Well, apparently... It was simply that the Thessalonian Jews were not even willing to engage with Paul despite his reasoning. They were not even willing to open up the scriptures and see if what Paul was saying checked out, but the Bereans were. They were willing to take a look and see what Paul was talking about, and lo and behold, as they did this, some of them were converted. Some of them believed and embrace the truth about Jesus. And that's really what I want you to see. Is I want you to see Paul's confidence here in the scriptures. Paul, In essence, Paul was always putting the Bible in people's hands. Coming alongside them saying, have a look at this. What do you make of this? Took them the scriptures. Sometimes I think we will put 15 books into someone's hand before it will ever occur to us to give them the scriptures. Now don't get me wrong, I do this too. There are great books out there. I read them, I use them, I hand them out to people. We can hand people Tim Keller and John Piper and C.S. Lewis and all these things and those are great things to do. But what if... We also acted on our theology that says we believe that these, these are the very words of God. And that this is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. You know, most people who reject Christianity have never really read the Bible. That's not always true, but it very often is. And there are great resources out there to help you do this. Christianity explored various investigative Bible studies, but what if we just invited people to read the Bible with us? What if we had a similar confidence in the scriptures? What if, along with everything else we put in our friends' hands, we pointed them to the Gospel of Mark, and we said, "How about if we read this together? I'd really like to know. I'd really like to know what this. What would happen? Please pray. Father, we thank you for the, the life and example and ministry and outcome of, uh, of Paul and Paul his devotion to you, commitment to you, sometimes part-time, sometimes full-time. I pray, Father, that you would give us a similar um, zeal, the confidence in you and your mission and purpose uh, in your word. And uh, you would grant us those similar opportunities to see Uh, how you work to participate in this ongoing expanding mission Uh, thank you Father that uh, as we look at really the the origins of why we're here in this room in particular that you would motivate us um, with uh, out of gratitude towards you uh, out of compassion for those who do not yet have that privilege of knowing you Motivate us to finish the job that was started uh, when Paul set foot on that European soil. Uh, Starting here and working outward from here. Uh, Use us, Father, and uh, and help us to believe that you can do uh, all of your mighty purposes. And you will, and uh, we look forward to seeing how you're going to work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll take a minute now to uh, take up an offering to support ministries of this church, but also a number of ministries that we support locally, nationally, and internationally um, through South Garden church.